Welcome to the third episode of our podcast series, in which hot topics, including new initiatives and alternative viewpoints on patient engagement within the life sciences sector will be covered. Although patient engagement is more and more common nowadays, it's absolutely crucial that it is also meaningful and sustainable. With this podcast series, we would like to contribute to achieving that goal. My name is Roger Lechtenberg, and I'm senior partner and co-owner of Edmedicum. And today I thought it would be interesting to share with you several extracts from a recent LinkedIn Live event that was moderated by my colleague Rob and starred Tom Smith, an independent patient consultant, together with Andreas Ryman, co-founder and managing partner of Edmedicum, who shared their thoughts on the roles and best practices for patient involvement in HTA processes. To introduce Tom a bit further, being an independent patient consultant at above disease level, he translates his own experiences of living with cystic fibrosis into positive change in the UK and globally. He's also a patient engagement editor at DIA Global and a board member of CF Europe. So now let's move to the extracts of the event, where Andreas gave an introduction to the topic, and I would like to pick it up at the moment when he started discussing last-minute patient involvement while a dossier for a new treatment is already under regulatory review. Of course. Uh, you can involve patients exactly at that time, so at the last minute. And believe it or not, I, uh, we as Medicum still receiving calls saying, oh, we are sub- about to submit an HTA dossier uh, within the next four weeks. Can you help us to, uh, to do meaningful uh, patient involvement? Um, and the answer, of course, is clear. Uh, th- there is nothing you can do at that moment in time. It's really the last minute. Uh, you can you can look to the data, you can discuss it, but you won't change it. In clinical development, you start with early stakeholder involvement actually at the beginning of the clinical development phase. Even actually before you can discuss with patients the target product profile. And that will then help to untap the potential that is in when you re- involve patients at the right moment that's early then you can make sure that evidence is created that is really meeting the needs of patients and that is really patient relevant rather than just repeating what other companies have done before or just uh, meeting the minimum regulatory requirements. And I'm very pleased to see that at least the FDA is is starting to to, to pay a lot of attention uh, to early uh, patient involvement during development rather than only at a, at a late stage. Now, what could patient-based HTA look like uh, at different stages? Um, well, right at the beginning, of course, identify and to nominate the topic for the assessment. That's based very much, of course, it, as all uh, HTA processes are uh, really national. Uh, this is very much based on the on on what what is offered by the um, specific system, um, but uh, certainly the uh, uh, participation in the technical and scientific assessment and the evidence appraisal as such. These are core elements where patient representatives can uh, raise their voice, can provide input to uh, in at different stages. We realize that there are big differences across Europe um, uh, where and, and at what time that could be, could be done and in what format. Very formalized uh, procedures like in France, like in Germany, like in the UK and uh, some 
some uh, in also in, the, uh, in 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 Belgium, but some uh, less formalized uh, less formalized uh, procedures in other countries. Still, there is a place uh, where patients can um, provide input to the to the appraisal but it, that is always based on the data that is available at that time as i said following the introduction by andreas tom continued with giving an inspiring overview on his viewpoints and the importance for patients to be involved in hta processes good afternoon or good morning everyone um, my name is thomas smith as rob Delightfully explained. I'm very happy with my introduction, um, but I'm not that boring. I do have a personality outside of those kind of things. I just wanted to pick up on, on something that you said, Andreas, which is how HCA is such a tiny part of the process um, and how it, a, a metaphor kind of jumped to my mind. And I'm not a rocket scientist, but I do know that in rocket propulsion, there's a huge amount of um, fuel that mixes in a throat and the power comes out the other end. And it's that focus, really, that I think HCA is. It, it can really generate a lot of pressure, both good and bad, because there's a huge amount of work that kind of, uh, you know, culminates there. Um, and it's, you know, it's make or break. And a lot of patients don't know that. Um, but I think the best way to approach HCA and patient engagement is to really think of this from, you know, the preclinical stage. It, it needs to be something which is we need to be touching base with patients every single step of the way. And like Andreas said, I'm sure a medicine would be able, would be useful and helpful at four weeks before an HTA um, appraisal. But really, we don't want to put our medicine in that, in, that, in that position because that sounds quite stressful. Um, and also, you don't want to put yourselves in that position either for the same reason, because ultimately, patients need drugs, companies need to sell them and regulators need to assess them. That's, that's the way it is. Um, but the good news is that it's there's a lot of work that can be done because it's just um, it's just not on the patient community's radar at all, really. Obviously, there are some some high-profile um, examples of that of where it is on the radar, but it doesn't go well. Um, I'm a, I'm a cystic fibrosis patient, as as was mentioned, and we had a huge public fight um, with a company about an amazing drug. Which is very expensive, and it, it just—it uh, wasn't—it was completely uncontained, and like I say, nobody, nobody looked good um, during that kind of argument. Um, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of roads to cover, really, and um, the only way is up, I suppose, because this is a relatively new thing. Um, you know, patient engagement and an HDA kind of coming together is a new thing. Like Andrea said, um, you passed just launched something yesterday, I believe you said. Um, and New Patty is an amazing organization and it's, um, you know, way ahead of everybody else as far as um, a, um, a school and a, an educational resource goes. But they're still, you know, just getting on it now. So there's a lot of uh, distance to cover. Things are going to get better, which gives people like me hope because this is what I'm interested in. And, um, you know, it means that there's plenty of work to do. I just want to touch on a few things, both from the um, patient organization side of things, from the patient community and also potential sponsors and anybody else who's interested. Um, I think that there's one of the first things we need to fix and work on is raising public awareness of the health technology assessment process. Um, because like I say, I, I'm not that comfortable with the term patient experts for a number of different reasons. But I am um, 
professionally inclined to be interested in this and understand how it works. And I'm, I'm seeing um, an increase in the amount of work that I'm getting in this area. But beyond that, you know, it's extremely niche, um, which betrays the actual value of it. Because like Andrea said, this is like a tiny part of it where there's a huge focus of pressure. Um, and I think that if we can um, build awareness of it, then we're going to get better at, I don't know, um, communication strategies, public pressure campaigns, um, things like that. So I think we really need to do a better job, us in the community and potentially the, the sponsor side as well, just, you know, saying, hey guys, um, health technology assessment is a thing. It's not as simple as making a drug and being able to give it to you. Um, I think that, and on that, it needs to be accessible. Um, I speak often about how it's not the sexiest thing in the world. It's not the most engaging um, topic to someone who's not professionally inclined to participate in this area. So I think we need to make it accessible with materials that people can understand and we need to do what we can to make it fun. Um, and I think at the moment, like I said, because there is such a tiny amount of people who are aware of um, the HTA process, meaningfully aware in the patient community, we are essentially losing out on a huge amount of compelling data and evidence um, because most of it just gets lost to the ether because, you know, people people are living their lives, they're trying to deal with their illness and they're not particularly interested in what's hap happening um, in regulatory bodies, you know, and but that doesn't mean that they don't have a huge amount of value to add to it. So I think that from the sponsor side, one of the, the most important things is like, like I said, the HCA process really starts at the preclinical phase and about priority settings. We need to communicate with the patient community to establish primary endpoints that actually matter to them. It, you know, all this is easier said than done. Um, like I say, it's relatively new, but that's essentially what it boils down to. I think that there are examples where drugs are reimbursed in certain territories and not others, and where those kind of awkward things happen. We need to communicate things clearly. We need to get um, patient communities to work together to generate the evidence that we need, because obviously the HTA process is evidence-based. And sometimes, you know, in, in rare, ultra-rare diseases, there isn't, you know, a huge amount of infrastructure there to, to collect this kind of thing. So we really need to work together across borders to pull it all into one place. Um, I think that also, you know, we can ramp up um, political pressure. As I was mentioning before, that the, the public and uncontained um, argument for some of my treatment a few years ago, that was a hugely um, effective, uh, really public pressure is, um, is all that kind of turn the tide because as far as I know, um, where the, uh, the UK government was and whether the, uh, the sponsor wanted the amount of money that was, there was a huge gulf and I was amazed that they actually agreed to it. Uh, and it's all because as much as it was undignified a bit, it was just, you know, creating outside of the CF community. This drug is amazing. People are dying without it. Um, and, you know, politicians and payers, they need to listen to that at a certain point. I think we could do a lot more to co-create trial protocols that fit um, into people's lives. And I think that we also need to just work on how we think about doing that. And again, like the patient community is not aware that you can have any kind of input on a, on a trial protocol or the endpoints or, or collecting data or anything like that. And I think the last thing I'll, I'll touch on is that 
from the patient um, community side of things, essentially the HGA process and the patient engagement, um, I suppose, process that within that is all about strengthening the argument to pay for a drug. Um, so it's it's really important that we build a really clear picture of what this is exactly like and how this particular treatment is going to either improve or extend the life of a patient. And I think, um, you know, it's it's just really interesting how it's, it's just it's really compelling stuff. It's it's really compelling stuff, and it it can't be argued with. But unless we have the data, it's just kind of doesn't exist. If you know something, understandably, because that's that's how these things work. Um, there are managed access programs which are hugely um, influential, as as I have experienced in my own life. I um, was granted access to a drug on compassionate ground because of my clinical kind of markers um, fell below a certain limit, and I have absolutely no doubt that that, combined with the political pressure, um, has changed everything. And, and like I say, this drug has completely transformed my life. And we just need to make sure that where um, similar innovation exists, we can actually get it into people's hands. So let's now continue after the introductions with a selection of questions that were asked during the session. Arun says, um, tapping into the full potential entails that HTA bodies actually include for example, patient preference evidence in their assessment. However, there seems to be not be agreement across HTA bodies about how to do this, including patient preference evidence in assessments. Uh, any thoughts? Yeah, uh, thanks very much, Arun. That's a, that's a great comment. Unfortunately, you are absolutely right. There is no agreement um, on how to include patient preference information. Yes, there is an agreement that um, at least in, 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 in most of the, of the HGA authorities that uh, it is important to understand what is, is actually is important to patients. How to find this out? Uh, there are different uh, opinions um, and uh, certainly there are debates about the, the right methodology. Patient preference information can give that insight. It can help to understand on the, in a systematic way, uh, what is really important to patients in certain situations. You can always argue that these are artificial studies and these are, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of artificial setting if patients are presented, for instance, um, a, a particular set of, of, uh, of uh, characteristics of a, of a potential medicinal product and they can they have to make discrete choices and and have to have do this repetitively uh, yes they are not exactly in that situation and yes it's not um the actual treatment situation you can always argue but uh, that's that's why it is called an experiment uh, but it provides a quantifiable insight and i can only um uh, i can only agree that we should help uh, convincing authorities to pay more attention to this. And actual patient organizations can, can do a great deal in, um, uh, in, in advocating for that. They can talk to, uh, uh, to the national authorities, uh, certainly within the European, uh, the new European process uh, and uh, the, um, uh, the, 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 the joint uh, and European um, uh, HTA, there may be, uh, there, there, is a, there should be a place for that actually. Tom, any, any thoughts on that? As you said, 
They're completely right. HCA bodies just want more and more patient engagement. And at the moment, it's not that clear exactly what they want and what they mean by that, um, which is frustrating. It's, it's, it's definitely frustrating, but I suppose we have to be balanced and pragmatic and kind and say, you know, this is a complex process and um, we're trying to figure out, um, figure things out. But I, I think that patient preference studies, they're an amazing way to find out what actually matters and obviously what patients prefer, but actually it's, it's part of a wider dialogue, which is just bringing people in. And I think that's, um, that has value in itself as well. I was wondering if you had any concrete advice about uh, for all those patient representatives out there who might be listening and want to get started in contributing to HDA processes. It could seem a bit daunting and they might not know quite where to go. Uh, are there any you know, first steps or resources? Uh, of course, we mentioned Upati before uh, to check out, but what else helped you on your journey of learning uh, about the HDA process and what would you recommend to other fellow patient advocates? Um, what helps me on my journey is something at which I, I do not advocate, which is unfortunately being interested in everything. Um, the fact that I'm now in a position to come on, on this kind of thing is actually in my specific circumstances, a result of a very broad and wide um, amount of curiosity in all things patient engagement. So, but I do have some advice. Um, I think that no matter which territory you're in, you need to connect with your national HGA body because they're probably going to have some kind of PPI, patient public involvement kind of um, network um, or, or involvement and engagement opportunities. And what I would advise is if you can, where you can, participate. You don't necessarily need any prior knowledge at all. And in some, in some cases that, has more value. You know, sometimes they want to know what people who aren't familiar with the process think. Um, and so, for example, with the uh, MHRA in the UK, they have something called the uh, Patient Group Consultative Forum, which is exactly that. You know, you sort of, you say hello, you send an email saying that you're, you're interested in this, as these signposted on their website. And once you're in the club, they send um, newsletters every single month about public engagement opportunities um, for people who, like I say, have no um, experience or knowledge to participate. Then what I would do, this is working on the assumption that you have a, a connection with your with a patient organization, and I'm speaking purely from the patient side of things, um, then connect with them. And by the way, these, these steps are interchangeable. You don't need to do one and the other. You can do both at the same time or the opposite. Um, so you need to connect with your patient organization, tell them what you're doing, um, and share what you've learned from the um from the uh, national hga body um and ask how you can help you know that's that's uh, and you know depending on the um I suppose, scarcity or how rare the the disease is they might be crying out for anybody who knows anything to actually help them with anything you know uh, any number of, of different things the third thing i would say is like you said rob at that point if you, if you have um, a fever for the flavor as they say um Educate yourself. Um, uh, connect with in, in Europe. We have a organisations like UPATI, the European um, Patient Academy for Therapeutic Innovation. They have a qualification called the Fellowship, which is a big, you know, fourteen-month in-depth course. Um, which is it's no no small commitment. It's something I've done myself, and I loved every single second of it. Um, there's also um, there's Eurodis, there's the European Patients Forum. 
And like I say, because um, patients um, involving and participating in the HTA processes is becoming more and more of a burgeoning issue, as, as was said before, these kind of uh, schools, that's, that's what I heard, they're sort of patient schools, um, are taking an increasingly serious approach to it as well. And the fourth thing I would say, which cannot, cannot be underestimated, you need to build your network. Um, you do not need to connect only with people who are familiar with your particular set of circumstances. If anything, it's way more interesting to look outside of that. Um, for example, one of the great things about that I love about the patient community is that um, it is international. So I've, I've gone from feeling very isolated to connecting with a global community of people who know what it's like to not have a straightforward life. And these people, they're all essentially pushing for the same thing, which is better outcomes for either themselves, their family members, people they care about, or just, you know, the the wider moral imperative of just people having better health. Um, and it's a very productive um, and constructive community to be a part of. But, you know, you can only access that if you're able to learn how to speak to people that you don't know. Um, for example, that's a huge, huge barrier. Um, but yeah, the last and one of the most important is definitely um, building your network. I can't agree more. Let me uh, say one one uh, additional thing. Probably, it's important to plan ahead, well ahead in time, and that's hard for a patient organization because they are so often there's so much uh, struggling with the with the with the daily access issues, the 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 the, the, the care, getting uh, organizing and and uh, advocating for better care, and obviously also helping their their membership. So they may not be aware that to to act meaningfully in an HDA process that needs preparation for their own too. So I was talking about pay, early patient involvement by, from a from a from a developer point of view, from a pharmaceutical and uh, medical uh, device point of view. But actually, in a way, it's also true for a patient organization. You need to prepare probably two years ahead to make sure that you're really focusing on the those objectives that are really. Uh, most important to you that matters. So you, you identify um, uh, gaps, uh, knowledge and capability gaps, and then you can partner with other patient organizations or other uh, or other partners. And 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 we are as at Medical Mall also very happy to to support where we can um, to to fill that gap. But but unfortunately, that needs also time, and that takes time, especially when you are working with volunteers. Well, Thanks. let me just jump jump on on the back of that sure. and maybe we could kind of distill that into a soundbite for sponsors which is there is never too much time or advance warning to give um, patient organizations if you are developing something with promise please speak to them as often and as early as you can so yeah. true when you see uh the industry supporting hta a patient involvement in hta what sorts of strategies uh or activities are they doing and uh undertaking what are some of the uh, best practices that industry can do to, um, you know, support HTA involvement while still of patients while still, you know, remaining uh, neutral? And that's a, it's certainly a delicate issue, and and let's be quite open and honest. There are issues around confidentiality. There are around uh, things around uh, conflict of interest. Uh, patients who are in very close relationship in the process in or in, in preparing the process of their involvement in HDA processes. 
um, with, a, with a certain industrial sponsor uh, may not be uh, suitable for, for uh, official involvement in HDA processes uh, later on and so on and so forth. So it's a delicate uh, issue still. Uh, I know a couple of companies who are, uh, which are very much interested in having, in providing support to empower patients to better understand HDA process in general, rather than preparing for a certain process. Uh, so the best way certainly is to do this on arm's length, not to be involved on a, in a, in, in, in a, in a, in a, in a direct uh, fashion, but to, to provide uh, for instance, to provide unrestricted educational grants, clearly to, to, sh to say that they are provided by a certain company, never play on the hidden agendas, just say this is, this is provided by company X, uh, but uh, then uh, let do this, uh, let that do um, by, by an independent um, uh, contractor or vendor or organization to make sure that uh, the, there is no influence, there is no bias uh, based on a certain, on a certain uh, product. I, ha I have to say it's, it needs to be done really transparent and with, with, uh, in, with all respect to the, to the independence of all the, of the organizations involved. Nice, thanks. Anything to add, Tom? Um, well, it just popped into my head um, something which I, I feel like I've been speaking a lot about recently, which is that there is just um, there is just generally um, a lack of soft skill training. Um, obviously, participating in the HTA process is it's just about, I suppose, connecting with organisations, with people in unfamiliar environments, unfamiliar settings, unfamiliar vernacular and registers and you know it's a completely different sort of glossary of terms shall we say a lot of the time and i think we we could just um obviously patient organizations have a million and more interesting issues but there is also a lack of capacity and just kind of soft skills and confidence and and and, and giving people what they need to actually participate in these conversations as well I can agree more. I mean, soft skills are often underestimated. And yes, there is the knowledge part, there is the educational part, there is training and so on and so forth. But uh, certainly, sometimes I see patient uh, representatives who have so much to tell, who, who have so much knowledge about they actually and, and, and people they know and they can generalize about this, uh, know about how, uh, that, that disease and how a a, how meaningful a certain treatment can be or not, and, and how meaningful certain data can be or it cannot be meaningful, but they have difficulties to express themselves or are shy and or feel, marginalize themselves, feel not to be well uh, well set up to, to talk to, to people who, who they never uh, met before. Yeah, that's that's so, I, I, Tom, I, I really I can't agree more. Uh, training on... on so-called soft skills they are very strong skills actually very very hard skills absolutely. but yeah absolutely and it's in in such a focused area as well like if, if you if you've been absolutely. to medical school you've done different bits and pieces oh. you work <laughs> in cf um the the consultants work with the same sort of um 12 inpatients and maybe 20 or 30 outpatients every single day they have the same question um same conversation with different people several times a day 
much. And you mentioned something, Andreas, about um, people marginalising themselves, but people are also marginalised. <laughs> it's no. we, we have this huge, huge issue with doctor-patient kind of thing, and and now more than ever, those kind of balances, thank God, are addressing and and. and it is changing people's lives. You know, people can advocate for themselves. They're growing in confidence. But actually, I think a lot of the time, patient communities, yeah, they they they, they uh, marginalise themselves. And but there is just this pervasive culture that if you have a disease, if you're down and down on your luck for for any reason, you don't have anything of value to add. And it just couldn't be further from the truth. So yeah, no, I'm I'm uh, I love talking about that kind of thing. I'm based in Spain, um, where patient involvement in HTA is not as well uh, organized or structured. What do you have to say? And there's many countries like uh, Spain, you know, Italy, I think, is in a sim similar situation, too, with actually regional HTA bodies as well, and not a national HTA body, and then lack of clarity about patient involvement in those uh, groups. Um, so for those patient advocates that are living in, in these countries um, where it's not mandated as part of the assessment, how can they still share the patient's voice? How can they still get involved? I think that um, there's, there's tons of things you can do. And like I said before, um, HCA is essentially um, a conversation about whether drug X is worth paying Y amount of money for. And for example, that's that's a that's a concept that people need to learn. Um, and I think that there's you can you can still start to build evidence. You can still start to um, look at outside. Um, when I was talking about you know uh, creating a network and and working outside of your disease area, there is still because the patient engagement community is um, global. There are tons and tons of examples where you can find how um, patient engagement became mandatory and what people are doing now that it is mandatory in those um, in those different territories. And basically, you can just speak to people and find out. You know, you can, you can start banging the drum. You can start building relationships with other organizations. You can start gathering data and evidence and, and um, collating the priorities of your community. But essentially, I can't advocate enough speaking to other people who are a bit further down the road, finding out what you can learn. And then there's no shame in it whatsoever because this is a, a fundamental humanitarian thing. We can just take those lessons and pull them in, into our own community. Yeah. yeah. And you can certainly, you can always talk to decision makers. You can try to approach them. Uh, you can publicly uh, uh, voice uh, and raise your voices. Uh, in it, uh, also inviting uh, um, other uh, potential allies like like clinicians, like learned societies, uh, to to join forces and to advocate for, to get the, the the message of the patients across, and uh, to get the, the needs of the patients across uh, to to decision makers. And of course, you can uh, you can you can act publicly and and advocate in, in policy to improve the formal um, uh, participation of patients. Certainly the European HDA process may also be a, in the future, I have to say, and it starts in oncology and rare disease in 25. At the end of the event, final thoughts were shared by Tom and Andreas. This is a really interesting time in health economics. Um, and I'm just honestly but as we say in english buzzing i'm excited um to see where it goes and like i say um we're starting small understandably because we have to start somewhere 
The only thing that I should warn against is a fear of failure. I, I think if we we just have to try, we have to trust our judgment, we have to push, put our best foot forward, um, and that will almost certainly be enough. But we, we can't worry too much about doing too much patient engagement or doing it in the wrong way. It's all about just trying to, I suppose, get tr a, a wider conversation started and um, we'll figure it out together. Actually, HDA, uh, uh, the involvement of patients in HDA processes, uh, I think, is not a nice to have. It is really mandatory to make those uh, HDA processes meaningful to the society, to the medical community, and most important also to a better care of patients. So we should all uh, try our very best to advocate for better involvement here. Thanks. And with that, I would like to thank Andreas and Tom, and also Rob, for their time and organizing the LinkedIn Live event and sharing their insights on the roles and best practices for patient involvement in HDA processes. And finally, I would like to also thank you, our listeners. And I hope this third episode was informative and inspirational. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform and stay tuned for the next episode.